All right, if you got your Bibles, open to John chapter 7. Now, we started last week, and we got up to verse 14. And this week, we, we might finish, we might not. Last week, we were in chapter 7, verses 1 to 14. And verse 7 says that he testified, or that people hated Jesus because he testified that the deeds were evil. And so we considered that the idea that so much for Christian ministry being easy or popular. And we also looked at what Jesus meant when he said, my hour or time has not yet come, and that referred to his crucifixion. And we went through the series of verses. It describes from when he turned the water into wine at the wedding, and that's the first time he used that phrase. And then finally he says, my hour has come at the in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this we're going to continue. Jesus is still at the Feast of Tabernacles. And he's still facing ridicule from his brothers. He's almost arrested a couple of times in the temple. And he's going to teach on a couple more really key points. And um, I've been really challenged as I've been going through this myself. So if I come across as um, really strong exaltation, it's just because I've been challenged myself. I'm not blasting everyone. I'm actually just, this is how it's affected me. And I'm just sharing the same thing. So I'll just pray, then we'll start reading. Father, I just pray that you'll help us to understand your words, that you'll help me to say only things that are true, and Lord, that you'll bless this morning's message. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, verse 15, chapter 7. The Jews marveled, saying, How has this man become educated, having never been taught? Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If any man desires to do his will, he shall know whether the teaching is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did Moses not give you the law, and yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, you circumcise a man on the Sabbath day, although it did not come from Moses but from the patriarchs. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath day so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry at me because I completely healed a man on the Sabbath day? Do not judge according to appearance, but practice righteous judgment. Then some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? Look, he speaks publicly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers indeed know that this is really the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple, cried out, You know me, and you likewise know where I am from. I have not come on my own authority, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know, but I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. So they tried to seize him, but no one laid hands on him, because his hour 
had not yet come. Still, many of the people believed him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? The Pharisees heard the people murmuring these things concerning him. So the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to arrest him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will look for me, and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What kind of saying is this which he said, You will look for me, and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. By this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believe in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore, when they heard these words, Many of the people said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has the scripture not said that the Christ comes from the seed of David, out of the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No man has ever spoken like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? Not at all. This crowd who does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus being one of them who came to Jesus by night, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Then everyone went to his own house. Okay, we'll start at verse 15. It says, And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Guess how many seminaries, or what we might call Bible colleges, were around in Jesus' day? 30, at least 30 seminaries, just around Jerusalem. And Jesus had a degree from how many of them? None of them. None of the human ones, anyway. Okay. Jesus had not studied or been a disciple under a prominent rabbi. So, you remember, Paul was... Uh, a disciple, or he studied under Gamaliel, Acts 22.3. So when the Jewish leaders heard him speak, they wondered where he received such insight. Who gave him this insight? And the same thing would later be said of like Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. And they noticed when they spoke with that boldness and that knowledge that they realized that they had been with Jesus. 
So the key here is that it's not what you know, it's who you know that counts. You can learn all you want, but if you haven't been hanging around Jesus, it's not going to do you much good. If you've been hanging out with Jesus, if you've been logging in some morning time with him, some afternoon breaks in his word, and some evening sessions of contemplation, even if you're unlearned and ignorant according to the world's scholastic system, people will marvel at you because you will have a wisdom that is beyond this world. It can't be taught by men. So the understanding that the Spirit gives is beyond what people can teach. He goes deeper. Verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me, or my teaching is not mine. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keeps the law? It's a bit of a a poke in the ribs. Hey, Moses gave you the law. Who keeps it? You know, what are they going to say about that? So we're going to go through this section bit by bit. The first verse in 16 it really hit me. He said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. So Jesus doesn't reply, oh, I, I studied under this person, or I studied under that person. He says, my doctrine is from the Father. It's not mine, but from him who sent me. He points to his teaching, his, his the truth of his teaching. If we carefully look at what Jesus teaches, we can always trace it back to where? Word of God, the Old Testament, yeah. It's always rooted in the Scriptures. Jesus was a gifted teacher, no doubt, but he was not self-taught and he was not others-taught. He was God-taught. His authority was not from himself or any man, but from his Father. And there's two main points that we notice about Jesus' teaching. One, it was always grounded in the Word of God and there was no error. And two, it was always balanced. So what I mean by that? Well, Jesus talked about heaven, but he also talked about hell. And he also was a very gracious and gentle, and he talked about the love of God. But what did he do? He testified that the world's deeds were evil. So he's balancing this truth and love. He's a balanced teacher. His teaching was balanced. Now, this same authority and opportunity to be equipped with the truth and to share it powerfully with others is available to all of us today. It might not be in a public setting, but one-on-one, in small groups, you know, sharing your faith, we can all have this understanding as we study the Word. You just need to be students of the Word and allow the Spirit to do His job and teach us as Jesus promised that He would. So what was Jesus' promise? Just to remind us of that. It's in John fourteen twenty six. It's up here on the screen. And John sixteen twelve to fifteen. So John fourteen twenty six first. But the counsellor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I told you. And chapter sixteen, twelve to fifteen. There is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, 
but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said, the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. So what the Spirit tells us is from the Lord. It's from Jesus. Jesus is teaching us. Jesus' teaching is through the Spirit. So always remember that we don't want to be self-taught or man-taught, but rather God-taught. I just want to think about this idea of being self-taught and, and man-taught. I've seen a few self-taught, what I call self-taught people around, and teaching, promoting what they consider to be the truth because it suits them or it benefits them or it interests them. You know, they get a little hobby horse and off they go. Now, often these people are unbalanced because they focus primarily on a particular theme or a subject. And they may come to the Bible with their mind already made up about what is true or right and then go to the Bible and use only those verses and read only those books and listen to only the teaching that supports their conclusions. And sometimes I've noticed they don't fellowship regularly with other Christians. They have these kind of different ideas and they don't fit in. That's that's one group of people. And then uh, the others taught people, they simply parrot what they have been taught by some person, church or seminary. Have you noticed, that I'm just going to use these as, a, as an example because um, it's true for every denomination, but have you noticed that most students or pastors from, say, a Baptist seminary will come out believing and teaching Baptist doctrine, whereas most pastors from a Pentecostal seminary or Bible college will come out teaching Pentecostal doctrine? Okay? So the same is true for the other denominations as well. So I'm not picking on these guys, but it's just as an example because they're quite different. Now, if you ask both of them, the seminaries, do you have the Scriptures as your final highest authority? Do you submit to the Scriptures? Oh, yes, yes. The Bible is the Word of God. It's true. Okay. Are you Spirit-led? Are you allowing the Spirit to lead your teaching? Oh, yes, yes. Absolutely. Are you seeking the truth? Absolutely. You know, who's going to say no to those questions? But... In their teaching, they are consistently and markedly different. (laughs) Are there two Holy Spirits? Is God confused? (laughs) I don't think so. In thinking about this, I think the main problem in this modern age, most of the church has lost sight of the sufficiency of scriptures. So in their teaching, they are consistently and markedly different. That's just a symptom of the root cause. What does sufficiency mean? Well. If I can get to Albany on one tank of fuel, do I need to take jerry cans? Do I need to organize for someone to pick me up halfway? You know, do I need to do any of these other things? Do I need to get other people's help? No, because I am sufficient. I, I have sufficiency in what I already have, what I, I've already been given to get to where I need to go. So the Bible is sufficient for all our needs. And I just want to look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It says, All Scripture is inspired by God, or God-breathed, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete or mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I'm going to read the same verse from the Amplified Version. It says, Every scripture is God-breathed, 
given by his inspiration, and profitable for instruction, for reproof, and conviction of sin, for correction of error and discipline in obedience, and for training in righteousness, in holy living, in conformity to God's will in thought, purpose, and action, so that the man of God may be complete and proficient, well fitted and thoroughly equipped for every good work. And before I talk about them, I'm just going to read a couple more verses. First Thessalonians 2.13 For this reason we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it truly is the word of God, which effectively works in also in you who believe. So what works in us? It's the, the word of God. 2 Timothy 2, 15-17 says, um, Study to show yourself approved by God, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But avoid profane, foolish babblings, for they will increase to more and more ungodliness, and their word will spread like gangrene or cancer. So, if the word of God is all we need, and it is, what does it do? What does it help us with? Well, it instructs and teaches us. It convicts us of sin. It corrects us and leads us to repentance. It trains us to live a righteous life. It helps us to grow to be mature, complete people with our character. And it equips us for every good work. Now, what is every good work? Well, let's just think about what subjects does the Bible talk about? Family, raising families, uh, kids, and that marriage, work ethic, relationships. And it says thoroughly equipped. It says it's meaning there is nothing more that we need to add to the scriptures in order to be complete and whole in all the important parts of life. And I just want to take a minute to consider what is happening in most of the church today. The areas where the authority and wisdom of the word of God has been superseded or pushed aside. So remember, my my idea here is that the church has lost sight of the sufficiency of the scriptures, that the scriptures are all we need. So here are some of the reasons I think that the um, church overall has lost their belief in the sufficiency of the scriptures on a practical level. Firstly, church discipline is not practiced. In most churches, it's not done. Sin is rife in the church as a result. Purity, power, and influence are a thing of the past in today's modern church. Counseling is done by so-called professionals who generally use worldly wisdom or worldly principles, you know, psychology and stuff like that. Many pastors or elders prefer to refer to so-called counselors instead of using the time-tested sufficiency of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to help and guide people. And I'm wondering, does the Holy Spirit feel like he's unemployed? Because the Holy Spirit's a counselor, right? And we use the Word of God to lead people, but it's the Spirit who does the work. We've lost that, I believe, in a big way. Um, In the New Testament, people came to hear the Word of God. They came to hear, literally, the Word of God. Today, often people come to hear a particular message or speaker because the charisma of the person is more important than the truth. Another reason, worldly standards are creeping in, or should I say flooding in, like, for example, homosexuality, female leaders in the churches, a love of money, all these things 
all this false teaching is coming in. Another reason, number five, prophecy is being ignored. For example, the book of Revelation in chapter 22, verse 10, it says, Do not seal up the prophetic words in this book, for the time is near. Yet what is the church mainly doing? Or oh, we can't touch prophecy, it's divisive. We can't do it to talk about that. What about church growth? People tend to seek church growth through a program or a book. Yet what does the Bible say about church growth? It says in Acts 6-7, The word of God spread or increased. And in Acts 12.24 it says, But the word of God grew and multiplied. It's the word of God that changes people, convicts people, trains people, transforms people. The apostles gave themselves to the word of God and the church grew. It's that simple. And if you look through the pages of the Bible, you'll soon find that success isn't measured by numbers, rather by it's measured by faithfulness. Uh, the next reason is because there is little or no power in today's seeker-friendly messages, people substitute experience and emotions for a real relationship with God. Another reason, number eight, my eighth reason, there is no outcry from the church when the Bible is basically banned from school, government, sporting, events, all that kind of stuff. Why not? Why don't we consider it important enough to complain or to make a stand? Because we've forgotten its sufficiency. We don't understand that it's all we need and anything else is useless. And we are relying on human wisdom. We don't, we, our, our dependence on the word is, is minimized. Uh, two more reasons. The ninth one is the teaching of evolution and other heresies as normal in the vast majority of seminaries and Bible colleges. And the last reason is the lack of expository teaching. People just seem to pick and choose the bits they want. Imagine the doctor said, you've got a serious disease. If you don't take this tablet or this, this medicine, all of it, you will die. It's not going to be effective unless you take all of it. What would you do? Would you just take half? No. Well, you'd take all of it because you need to have all of it for it to be effective. Well, in the same way, the Bible says that all Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, etc. Okay? So we need all the Word of God. Consider a balanced diet as another um, analogy. You know, you don't just eat meat, or you don't just eat vegetables, or you don't just eat nuts, or you don't just eat ice cream, whatever it might be. You have a balanced diet. And so we need the whole Word of God. And so the lack of expository teaching is, is another uh, symptom of this, what I believe is a, a lack of people's belief and understanding in the sufficiency of the Word of God. So what happens when we don't treat the Word of God with the respect and honor it deserves? Well, if you go to Mark chapter 7, I've just got verses 9 and 13 up. And he said to them, You full well reject the commandment of God, so that you may keep your own tradition, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have delivered or handed down. And the same verses from the New Living Translation. Then he said, You skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And there's a verse I'm just going to go back to now. Second Peter 3.16 As in all his letters, this is Peter talking about Paul, he writes about these things in which some things are hard to understand, which the unlearned and unstable distort, 
as they also do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So you full well reject the commandment of God so that you may keep your own tradition, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have delivered or handed down. You know, when I um, buy my Bible software um, and they ask me to update, they say, do you want this denominational things? And if you look through the, the books they offer, it's got the history of this church and the history of that church and, and this, the, um, this, this denomination's version of baptism, this denomination's version of, of this and this and this. Or you can get this other denominations thing and it's like, you can't just buy a Bible study package, you got to buy a denomination and it's just ridiculous. I find it's ridiculous. Now I've got to try and choose well, which, what's closest to what I believe. <laughs> it's quite hard. Now, talking about replacing things, all right, and holding on to your own tradition, if you go to the Old Testament, I'm, I'm not going to read it, but it's, it's um, Jehoshaphat, the, um, Solomon's son. He had these gold shields that his father had put up. I think it was in the, it's one of his halls. I can't remember which one it is. And... um the Egyptians came and, and took them all away, all this, these really valuable shields. And what did he do? He replaced them with bronze ones. He replaced them with bronze ones. So the gold was taken and he replaced them with bronze. So something that was a really good thing, really valuable thing, a really beautiful thing, was replaced with something that was cheap and nasty. And... What we replace the Word of God with is only a band-aid solution and a cheap substitute. Now, is this always a conscious decision? Well, I would say no. I don't think the Jewish leaders are saying, I want to disobey God. I'm purposely going to disobey God and and do my own thing. I think this is something, uh, Paul says in um, Romans that they were zealous for God, but without knowledge. It's very important, but without knowledge. And there's so much deception in the church today, and most of it comes about simply because most Christians are what I would call biblically illiterate to some degree. They may have been Christians for years, but never read through the whole Bible. They go to a church, but never read, or seldom read and study the Bible for themselves. There's a lot of these people who I've talked to, and, um, you know, oh, I never heard that before. When you're talking about basic doctrine, I didn't understand that. Thanks for sharing, me, sharing that with me. And it's like, well, it's good. I'm glad I could help you, but you really should have known that if you've been a Christian for five years. You know, it's 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 really it's kind of um it's sad. And it's like it says in Hebrews, when the writer of Hebrews speaks to his audience, he's saying, "I would love to tell you more, but you can't handle it. You're not ready for the meat. I have to keep giving you milk. You still need to be taught the basic doctrines, especially about repentance and things like that." But in saying that, here's the introspection. We are all self-taught or others-taught to some degree. Would you agree with that? We we take on the beliefs of our parents, our churches, and whatever, and we tend to hold on to those things unless someone gives us a really good argument not to. And even then, we still hold on to them. So as we mature as Christians, what should be happening is that our spiritual ears become more open to listening to what the Spirit says. And we, as we spend more time in the Bible, then His voice becomes louder and we start to hear from Him as we read the Scriptures for ourselves. And that's what we need to do. So how do we study the Bible? It's the best way to study the Bible. Well, read it. <laughs> Meditate on it. 
you know, commentaries and sermons are someone else's interpretation or understanding of a passage. They may be right, they may be wrong, it doesn't matter. They might give us some insight, but they always contain someone else's emphasis or bias, and they will always be incomplete. There's more to a passage than any one person can bring out or expound. For me, in my personal devotions, I now avoid devotional books. I just read the Bible. I have learned from experience that if I give God time, if I, if I don't understand something, I'm not sure about something, if I give God time and keep meditating on something and go back to it and pray for understanding, then most of the time, God will give me the understanding. God will show me what it means. Sometimes I still go to commentaries or listen to sermons. Um, but generally speaking, I... Um, more and more these days, just spending more time in dependency upon being taught by the Spirit and less time being taught by com- um, commentaries and and uh, listening to sermons and things like that. So think about it this way. You're married. So this is for the uh, people who, I was kind of like this before, who spend, oh, I need to know about this. So you go to the, listen to this sermon or I like this guy, I'll listen to that sermon. Or, I'll read this commentary. But it's like this, right? That's how I think of it. You're married, but instead of talking with your wife, you go and ask other people what she thinks. You ask other people how she feels. You ask other people what she likes and what she would like to do. It's like listening to a sermon and reading a commentary about God. You're getting other people's opinions on who God is. You're not actually hearing directly from God. It's secondhand. So, I'm going to come back to that. I'm not saying it's, it's wrong to listen to sermons and read commentaries. But if we if that's all we do, or if that's mostly what we do, then imagine your relationship with your spouse. It wouldn't be all that good. You know? You're getting someone else's opinion on your, your wife or your husband. Now, is it wrong to ask others about your husband or wife or to get counsel when you don't know what to do or you don't understand something? Absolutely not. It's actually very helpful and beneficial, and at times it's necessary and very wise to do so. So good and godly counsel helps us all at some stage. Okay, We all need it at some stage. You have to go and get help at some stage. And that's the way God's designed the church. He's made us with teachers and, and things like that. But the quality of our marriage, for example, always comes back to how well we communicate with our spouse. You can go and get counseling and, and the person will tell you all about your wife and what he thinks and but if you don't actually talk to your wife and put that into practice it's not going to do you much good and it's the same with our relationship with god so is there a place for sermons and commentaries yes but we need to be careful what we listen to or read because it's so easy to be misled be really picky and why are they useful? Some people say, I oh, don't need it, just use the Bible. I would say, no, you do need these things. Why? Because we stand on the shoulders who of those who have gone before us. God has revealed truth to those who have gone before us, and we can benefit from that. Absolutely. And uh, that is why God has set up the church with teachers to teach people. So there needs to be both. Now, here's a suggestion for you. If you listen to a sermon or read a commentary for an hour, getting someone else's opinion of a passage or truth, then try spending at least two hours just reading your Bible for yourself. Spend at least twice as much time just reading for yourself and then getting someone else's second-hand information. What do you need to get truth and to change? Well, you need the Word of God, you need the Holy Spirit, and you need faith. The Israelites didn't have faith and the Word of God didn't benefit them. 
And it's the Holy Spirit who teaches us, so we need to be submitted. So we need to be submitted to the Father, submitted to the Spirit, and have faith. All right, verse 17. If any man desires to do his will, he shall know whether the teaching is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. So the key word here is do. Okay, it doesn't say if any man desires to know his will, but to do his will. Okay, so revelation is directly linked to application or obedience. If you do what you've already been told, or you already know, you put it into practice, then God will reveal more to you concerning himself and concerning doctrine and that. The problem with us is so frequently is that we don't do what we already know to do and then wonder why we don't learn or understand more. So someone said, obedience is the door through which revelation enters. Obedience is the door through which revelation enters. At the Mighty Men's Conference the other day, someone said, generally, as Christians, we are all educated beyond our obedience. And what he meant by that was, our problem is not that we don't know enough, but rather we don't put into practice all the truth that we already know. So someone who knows just a little bit is better off than someone who knows a lot if they put all of what they know into practice because the person who knows a lot might not put putting any into practice and what they understand is not helping them. Now, this reminded me of the Left Behind movie. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's, um, you know, Kirk Cameron and that, and the rapture happens. And Bruce, the assistant pastor of the church there, when he is left behind after the rapture, he's, he's sitting, kneeling in the church, and he goes, knowing and believing are two different things. And many today are like Bruce. They know the truth of the gospel, but refuse to act on it or, or apply it. There's no repentance. But for us Christians, we can know the truth of what is expected of us, but refuse to change, refuse to obey. And overall, you think about the church in general now. Think of how many Christians, people who call themselves Christians who, today, who go to secular movies. Now, I've been looking up a movie to go and see because we had tickets, but they've expired now. We, we couldn't find one. They didn't have blasphemy or swear words in it. We just couldn't find one. I mean, there was one that came through that was a sponsored movie, which I went and saw. That was good but uh, as a Christian one. But all the secular ones, they've all, they all blaspheme, or most of them blaspheme, with, uh, apart from some of the, the kiddies ones. And they generally have you know, you know, sex scenes and swearing and all that kind of stuff. So... Christians, many Christians, go to the movies on a fairly regular basis and they're paying to hear people blaspheme. They're paying to hear people swear. They're paying to be a peeping Tom and instead of looking through a bedroom window and looking at someone having physical relations, they're looking at a screen. What's the difference? You pay for it. So generally speaking, Christians today have been conditioned by the world, molded by the world, instead of being transformed by the Spirit of God. And it's a case of too much world and too little Bible, prayer, and fellowship. So people in that situation where they're compromising their, their walk with the Lord by going and, and, and watching, just for example, movies, there's other ways you can, you can sin as well. They're not going to receive more revelation from the Lord until they start putting into practice what they know to be true. I shouldn't be watching sex scenes in a movie. I shouldn't be going to a movie when there's blasphemy. It's wrong. It's breaking the car. I'm sponsoring this behavior. I'm paying for it. I'm encouraging it. No more. Okay, moving on. Uh, verse 19, the second part. Why do you seek to kill me? 
The people answered and said, You have a demon who are seeking to kill you. Ah, uh, well, us. <laughs> um, for 21. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. What's the work he's talking about? It's when he healed on the Sabbath. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers or patriarchs, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So Jesus is developing an argument here. He says, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So Jesus is using one of their rules here. If someone needed to be circumcised on the eighth day and the eighth day happened to be on the Sabbath, then guess what? They would do that. They would cause someone pain. They would cause anguish. They cause them to cry out, you know, and, and to and to do this on the Sabbath. And yet Jesus comes along and heals someone on the Sabbath. Doesn't cause pain. Doesn't cause anguish. He actually heals someone, and the people go, "You know, you can't do that." Does this, that kind of sound a bit ridiculous to you? Because that's the argument that Jesus is making. He's saying. Does it really make sense to you to circumcise on the Sabbath, but not let me heal on the Sabbath? So, verse 25. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. So the crowd is all mixed up. Some people believed that the Messiah would come suddenly and spectacularly, just appear out of nowhere, and no one would know where he came from. Others said, no, no, he can't be the Messiah because he's from Nazareth, and they didn't understand that he actually did come originally from Bethlehem. And therefore they argued that he couldn't be the Messiah. So, again, a lack of knowledge. Verse 28, Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from. Well, some people have said that this could be sarcastic because <laughs> obviously they don't know him and they don't know where he's from. He continues, And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me, talking about the Father. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. They couldn't argue with Jesus, and so what do they do? They resort to violence. And what's happening in the realm today? They can't argue with Christians because we have the truth. And so they resort to violence, force people to do things. And why are they um, so upset with Jesus? He's making yet another declaration of his deity. Verse 31, And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. Oh no, the Pharisees are hearing the people talking about Jesus and saying, wow, maybe he's a good guy, maybe he's a Messiah. And so what do they do? And the Pharisees and chief priests sent officers to take him. They are so jealous. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come that is so sad these people will not 
be able to go where Jesus is going. Now, what does John 14 say? Behold, I go and prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be. Okay? So, Jesus says to the disciples, I'm preparing a place for you. Where I'm going, you're going to come. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You're going to be with me. I'm going to come back and get you. Don't worry. Don't fear. Don't stress. You know, don't be concerned. Be comforted. And here, to the Jewish leaders, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Jesus is not sugarcoating this message. He's dealing, or shooting double barrels, <laughs> both barrels at the same time, if you know that, that saying. He's not trying to fashion his reputation or build a ministry. His sights were set on heaven. He knew where he was going. He's going to be in heaven soon. And the implication of his statement is that the Pharisees and the chief priests wouldn't be joining him. And this makes me um, tremble a bit inside as he realized the eternal quenches of rejecting Jesus. Where I am, you cannot come. It's, it's a stern warning. Uh, verse 35. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. So what they're thinking is that the dispersion is those who haven't come back from the Babylonian and Assyrian exiles and back, you know, four or five hundred years before, prior. And Jesus is going to be a missionary to them. They're completely misunderstanding the spiritual nature of what he's saying. He's talking about going to heaven. Verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, I'm going to come back to that verse, and I'm going to explain that scenario. And just go on to verse 40. Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. So for another example of confusion amongst the people. Verse 43 says, So there was a division among the people because of him. So have you found that Jesus has caused division amongst you and your peers and your family at times? What does Matthew 10.34 say? It says, Think not that I come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Therefore, don't be surprised, don't be shocked when you sense divisions due to your stand as a believer in Christ. It's inevitable. It happened here and with Jesus, and it will happen in our lives as well. And uh, notice that their rejection of him was in part due to the ignorance of him. They didn't realize or believe that he was born in Bethlehem. So if they got their facts straight, if they bothered to check it out, they would realize he was from Bethlehem. Now, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why have you not brought him or arrested him? The officers answered, I love this phrase, No man ever spoke like this man. 
We went to arrest him, said the officers sent by the Pharisees and chief priests, but we ended up arrested by him. <laughs> For we never heard anyone talk like he talks. Generosity, clarity, authority, such love, such truth. Verse 47, Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. That's a strong word, accursed. Don't be duped by this Galilean, said the Pharisees. We're the ones with the education and degrees. Verse 50, Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our Lord judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? So in John 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. And he didn't know much. He was just his first, I believe, his first kind of exploration in finding out more about Jesus. Here, he still doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't quite understand who Jesus is. He's probably got a, a pretty good idea that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not fully convinced. He hasn't. If he does, he hasn't made it public. But when do we know that Nicodemus is truly saved? Well, it's after the cross. It's after the crucifixion. In John 19.39, then we find out that Nicodemus is fully saved. So what's important when sharing the gospel is the cross. We need to get to the cross when we're talking about the gospel. So we need to turn every conversation, every discussion back to the cross. Jesus died, rose again, and wants to be your saviour, king, and friend. What are you going to do with him? Are you willing to repent of your sin? Verse 52, They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Now, if you are a very astute Bible scholar, or a student of the word, there is actually a prophet who came from Galilee. Can you guess who that is? Jonah. Jonah is one who... He is also a type of Jesus, and he came from Gath Hefer, which was three miles north of Nazareth in Lower Galilee. And you'll find that in 2 Kings 14.25. These know-it-alls didn't actually know it all. So, and every man went to his own house. So the eighth day of the feast has come and gone. The little booths, they knock down, you know, throw the branches away. The sleeping bags are rolled up. The gas fires are put put away, you know, they're taken back to the refilling stations and take it ready for the next year. But where did Jesus go? Well, chapter 8, verse 1 tells us he went to the Mount of Olives and probably to camp out. And the next day he comes back to the temple. But before we do that, next week I want to go through verses 37 to 39 and talk about what Jesus said there and, and talk about the traditions that they went through. Like Passover has traditions, they do all these things with the, the leaven and stuff like that. Well, Tabernacles has traditions as well that the Jews would do over the eight days of the feast. So, um, yeah, we want to talk more about that in a bit more detail and, and what, what Jesus' words meant. So, um, for now, we'll stop there. So, think of, remember this week, the sufficiency of the Word of God and how that affects us. And I just might quickly just read those main points. Why, how do we know? What, what are the signs or the symptoms of a lack of understanding or of a lack of trust in the Word of God? Church discipline is not practiced. Counseling is done by so-called professionals. 
in the New Testament, people came to hear the word of God. Today, it's a particular message or speaker. Uh, worldly standards are creeping in or flooding in. Prophecy is being ignored. People seek church growth through humanistic methods. Because there is little or no power in today's seeker-friendly messages, people substitute experience and emotions for a real relationship with God. There is no outcry from the church when the Bible is banned from school and government and sports, etc. The teaching of evolution and other heresies is normal in the vast majority of seminaries and Bible colleges. And lastly, the lack of expository teaching. People just pick and choose what they want. We need a balanced diet. We need all of it. We know not to reject the commandment of God to keep our own tradition. Father, I just pray that you help us to, in our own lives, just search us, Lord, and help us to know if we are trusting completely in your word or we're trusting in other things as well, if we've added things, if we, um, if we think we need other things other than just your word to help us in our life. Lord, in our relationships, in our jobs and, and things like that. Help us, Lord, to be completely dependent on you. Lord, to realize that we don't need anything else. We are sufficient. Uh, and in Corinthians it says that um, you are our sufficiency. We are, we are sufficient in Christ. And we don't need anything or anyone else. Help us to, to rest in you. Help us to grow in you. And um, to be transformed from glory to glory by your Holy Spirit as we as we read your word for ourselves, and and, um, ask you to reveal it to us, to reveal your truth to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.